You're listening to Pod Academy. If you've seen the film Pride, about the involvement of lesbian and gay activists in the UK miners' strike of the 1980s, or even if you haven't, you'll find this discussion that took place at Birkbeck University of London absolutely fascinating. Hosted by Birkbeck Institute of Gender and Sexuality and the Birkbeck Institute for the Humanities, it starts with the making of the film, but importantly it goes on to look at the politics of the Thatcher era, when, as Mike Jackson says, you had to be a very, very brave person indeed to declare your homosexuality, and it explores the relevance of both lesbian and gay activism and the miners' strike to the politics of today. This first section brings together Mike Jackson and Sean James MP, and it's chaired by Daniel Monk. The Pits and Perverts Ball in London took place on December the 10th, 1984, which is almost to the day 30 years ago. So I'm absolutely thrilled that 30 years later, at Birkbeck, we've got the opportunity to provide a platform for some of the key people in the lesbian and the gay support, the miners' campaign and the miners' strike, to come here, and the real-life people portrayed in the wonderful film Pride. Um, Birkbeck Gender and Sexuality, this year very much wanted to focus more explicitly in its events on the politics of austerity and the devastating effect that it's having, has had and is having on the lives of so many people. And then the film Pride was released and creating an event about the film and politics now just seemed too good an opportunity to, to miss. Sometimes to look forward you need to look backwards and change and continuity have a curious relationship. I imagine many of you here have seen the film and have laughed and cried and reminisced about the past and got nostalgic and in some cases learnt about things that happened before you were born and uh, it was all quite new. I know they've got a laugh. Actually, some of the actors playing the real-life people weren't born when the events were taking place. When I was discussing this event with Mike... Uh, this was after a drag act and lots of beers at Central Station. So when we were discussing the having this event, um, we were both very keen, and I, Mike, Mike was very keen in particular, that it wouldn't just be about the films. It wouldn't just be about what Mike's going to wear to the Oscars. That it would actually... Although, you know, we do want to know. But it was also going to be very much about politics now. That if the film has touched people, has inspired people, it's created some sort of energy that we want to take on and engage with now. Uh, as Mike has said elsewhere, he's written this, it's tan- the, the proof, it's tangible proof of the huge power that working class people have if they unite and fight together. So, welcome everybody. Um, it gives me huge pleasure to introduce... Uh, Sean James, who is the MP since 2005 and the first woman MP for Swansea East, and who plays a really important part in the film. I think it's important to be clear that um, the film isn't just a composite of characters, it really does base itself very accurately on the characters. And you're played by Jessica Gunning. And also gives me great pleasure to introduce Mike Jackson, who was one of the founders of the LGSM, Lesbian Support the Miners campaign. So it's really fantastic to have you both here. Um, a real thrill, thank you. Um, I'd like to start by asking a question. The director, uh, Matthew Walker, said that the responsibility to the truth pervaded everything in the way he made the film. Now, you can tell us, how accurate was it? Did he get that right? I think it was very accurate, wasn't it? I mean... From the beginning, Stephen Beresford, the writer, was very honest with us. He said that this wasn't going to be a minute-by-minute account of, of you know, the strike and the relationship between Ethan DeLice and Swansea Valley Miners Support Group and Lesbians Gay Support the Miners. 
and that it couldn't have casts of thousands. You know, so that by necessity there would be amalgamation of characters, there would be words uh, spoken on the stage that would might not have been spoken originally by that very character at that point in time. Uh, people have been very interested whether it's 100% accurate. I think the spirit is very accurate. Uh, I'll give you an example of where it deviates slightly. I didn't march into a police station all alone and demand the freedom <laughs> of, of uh, those young miners, but there was a group of us, and, and I was quite vociferous. So for the ease of the story, you know, there were things that had to be written in a certain way. But every joke is true. Every, every situation is true. Um, and... Uh, it was a great opportunity to retell some of those stories because we used to say in the van when we were driving around in the van, if we didn't laugh, we'd cry. Please, right. will you hold the mics? Okay. Yeah. Are you still not clear? Okay, okay. we can hold these. Yeah, yeah they are there. Okay. All right. Um, if I can just add to that. Um, okay. um, several times we went to go and see... Uh, studios and went on shoots and so forth and both cast and crew every time you went to them they just kind of really fated us and just said how much they're loving doing this movie because they loved the original story that it was based on and that kind of four letter word just kept repeating itself again and again and again and I think really that love shows in the film how much effort they put into it the actors um, I mean, the art department, they, they were just fantastic. And little details like the Pits and Perverts shoot never comes up in the movie, but it's, the floor is littered with ticket stubs for the event. Do you know what I mean? It's just like incredible attention to detail. And the button badges, isn't it? They've yep. even gone so far as to have boards with all the button badges on them and uh, all the things, the little things that you've forgotten were there on that night. Yeah, yeah. You know, they really, really had. An, uh, one of my friends' daughter said, You didn't have a hairdo like that, did you? You didn't wear those clothes. And I said, Well, yes, we did. You know, it was called the 80s. <laughs> but they did, they put great attention to detail. And for us Welsh characters, you know, the, the, the work that went into helping. The, uh, the, the actors get the accents right. It was amazing. There was a voice coach. But Bill Nye, I think, was so clever in what he did, didn't he? Yeah. He took a tape recorder and he went into local working men's clubs in, in, in the valley and got people to read his lines into a tape recorder. <laughs> and he got these strange men in strange clubs to read his lines. And then he went home and listened and listened and practised and practised. And I think it paid off in the end. And um, I told Stephen Barris that that one of my kind of faulty gay genes was was that I never have really much sense of style. And the first time I saw the screening of it, Joe Joe Gilgan's clothes were appalling. And I thought, oh, he's got that detail. (laughs) (laughs) When this film's been screened... Uh, certainly when I went to the screening there was this spontaneous applause afterwards and I've heard from lots of people that they had a similar experience what is that? that just doesn't happen I mean it's never had to be in a cinema before I'm really surprised by it what's that about? why do you think it's had that effect on so many people? Um, well the, uh, the story itself is, is, is very moving and it, uh, it was at the time you know, we, what we experienced together as two communities was astonishing at, um, and so that the story itself carries out, and of course, then there's Stephen's artistry and, and Matthew Walsh as the director, uh, and just the kind of subtlety with which the whole thing's handled. Um, I mean, my background's horticulture, so the movie industry is about as far removed as, as Pluto for me. Um, but Stephen told me about this device in the movie industry that they call the treacle cutter, and what that is is. Just when a scene might be getting sentimental and mawkish, you throw a hand grenade in there and it moves the audience on so it doesn't become over-sentimental and mawkish. And that, that kind of sophistication, I think, in his writing and the, and the direction is, is, is also one of the things mm-hmm. the movie's so... I, I've seen the movie, and we can honestly say we've seen it across the world, haven't we? Yeah. And every audience reacts in the same way. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, We've been very bemused by going to the Toronto Film Festival 
you know, and being fated and being... I was sitting down in the lobby in the hotel and somebody shouted on an escalator, Sean, saw the movie, loved it. So, so I just put my thumbs up because I had no idea who this guy was. It was Mike Lee. <laughs> and somebody sitting next... And somebody sitting next to me said, that's Mike Lee. I said, who? Who? Where? Yeah, you're an escalator. But it has touched audiences, and it's touched audiences in, in such a, a deep way because they want to applaud. And I've seen it in the local miners' welfare hall with people who were portrayed on the film, you know, the background people, the people who were in the bar and, and in the club. Uh, and, who, and oddly enough laughed at very different things mm. because what they laughed at was seeing people they knew on the screen Woo! I remember that and, and there was a lot of reminiscing going on in the audience and then we've seen it with very sophisticated audiences in New York mm. with you know 1300 people and invited audience to see it and I can honestly say that the response was exactly the same people feel uplifted it's an overused word sometimes, I think. You know, it's an uplifting film and you leave the cinema feeling that there's hope. And, and, and sometimes that can be hype. But when whoever sees it, and I think the most strange one was Gray, who looked after us in, in Los Angeles. His mum and dad watched in Atlanta, Georgia. And they said that the audience stood up and applauded at the end of the film in Atlanta, Georgia. And I found that very particularly moving because we all know the prejudice and, and, and the bigotry that can exist in, in, in isolated communities in many ways and isn't that the stage forward that that community there was just like any other community they could see that there was such a sense of achievement with this film and I love watching it with young people because young people I say just get stuck in I say yeah. to them you know if you've been moved or enthused by this film just do something, join something, get stuck in, campaign for something. And lots of trade unions that I've spoken to want to use the film as a vehicle for campaigning because mm. it's reminding yeah. people, as, as Mike has written so movingly, that you can change things, you can achieve things. Mm. And uh, It's a story of ordinary people as well, so I think everybody can kind of identify with it. There's no great heroes in Pride. It's, it's a collective, the whole point is it's a collective efforts and it's a, it's a communal experience and that, that, I think has great appeal to people really, How especially you... right now because we're living in such dreadful times again it's mm. actually worse I think than the times of Thatcherism really I mean it's this spot now we're just despicable um, I've left a leaflet around about TTIP and if you don't know about TTIP you really need to because they're actually attacking democracy itself it's, it's horrendous Don't underestimate what we did with Mike and the other men and women's help collected for us in London, we fed a thousand mining families a week. We had to raise between five and eight thousand pounds a week to pay for the food that we were distributing. So we had this focus. We had a support group, which I'm proud to say you put your money in and everybody got the same out. It didn't matter what village bought in what amount of money, we all drew the same amount out. And secondly, if you came to the meeting, it didn't matter who you were, union rep, ordinary National Union of Mine Workers member, wife, auntie, uncle, grandmother, next-door neighbour, activists from London, you got to vote. So on a Sunday evening, there would be these huge debates about what was going to happen and how we would behave and what our next plan of action would be is very, very liberating. So we, we remained solid in South Wales, but the strike sort of collapsed under us. And I think if it had ended up in a different way, we might have today have a different portrayal of it. But I think it was in the Tory government's interest to portray us as enemies within. And that was the worst thing that they did to us, really, was portray us as somehow... Um, we've had a re recently had a revisit in the miners' strike and through the Welsh language. And I participated in that programme. And they interviewed... The presenter interviewed people like uh, Nigel Lawson uh, and other, you know, Tory leaders of the time. And they were vitriolic about us. They actually have compared us in that Welsh language programme to terrorists that the only way of dealing with this was to stamp down on us hard 
because we couldn't be and I worry when you have individuals, representatives who can talk like that about a section of society and a section of community so I think it's been in the interest of the media to portray us in that way and that has suited another agenda and I think that after the strike we all got on with our lives really we had lives that we had to rebuild so a lot of people sort of were in tremendous debt you know we'd had everything cut off but the electric you know, we didn't have a car, we didn't have a telephone, you know, we had the bank manager ringing us up every every second, you know, week, when are you going to repay this overdraft? So I think people found it easy to get on with things and not to fight back at that point. But I think we have, through our individual actions, carried on fighting back. And now I think, because I'm standing down next year, because I, I want to get back to real politics. I really want to get back to community politics. Westminster is a wonderful place and you can affect great things there. But you do miss that. It is a bubble. It is a bubble because we're in danger of talking to each other as politicians and I'm tired of that. I want to talk to real people. And um, We've refunded our minor support group. Mm-hmm. You know, and we've got to get things done again. <laughs> the miners were fighting. They weren't resisting change. They were fighting for the very survival of their communities. Um, and it's a complete lie that it, it calls uneconomic. It's far more complicated than that. I mean, the, the miners had always agreed that when a pit is exhausted, then yes, it's exhausted and it has to close. But in fact, the, the pits that were listed in McGregor's uh, list, lots of them were, were very good pits with hundreds of years worth of uh, coal supplies. And also, Britain is leading the world in, in uh, clean coal technology of carbon capture, even then, 30 years ago, it was known about the dangers of, uh, of global warming. And as I say, the, the British industry was actually leading the, the world on that. The reason we supported the miners, though, wasn't about so much about the communities. What, what we saw, all of us saw, the miners' strike as being about, really, had nothing to do with coal. It was about destroying the trade union movement. And you destroy the coal miners, then you've got you've dealt a mortal blow to the rest of the trade union movement. And hence today we have zero hours contracts. What what a what a yeah. nonsense yeah. that is. How courts can possibly uphold zero hours contracts? It makes a mockery of the law. It's yeah. disgraceful. I want to ask a couple of questions more of you. Um, starting with you, Mike. Mike, I'm going to quote something that you wrote in 1989. Um, I'd been very frustrated politically and just got fed up having to compromise my sexuality for the sake of comradeship with people who wouldn't accept it. What you were talking about there was one, one of the reasons why you wanted to set up Let's Go Support the Morrow Side. What was that politics where you had to compromise your sexuality for the sake of comradeship? Can you remember what you were talking about? Because that seemed to be very much talking about another age, another time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if it's 30, 40 years ago, I can't it remember it. It's just the last 20 years, I can't remember anything. Um, no, I, I think, I mean, I was actually in the Labour Party from about 15 to about 19, 20 years of age. Uh, and uh, about 19, I moved to London. I came out, well, I, I exploded more than came out. Um, and, you know, that, you know, the 70s you know, well, really all through the 70s. Um, the trade union movement and the Labour Party was characterised by kind of white men in grey suits and they were sexist, they were homophobic and with a very small seat, they were very conservative. And, you know, it, it was those liberation groups, black liberation, women's liberation, gay liberation, that started to fight against all that lot. And, I mean, every gay man will have a different opinion about this but I've always said that really to, to my mind the, the gay liberation movement's big sister was the women's liberation movement That I think the women's liberation movement had, had an enormous impact on lesbian and gay liberation um, so I, you know yes I was a socialist and I remained such but it was intolerable really to work with these people and one of the worst aspects of, of that oppression in those days, you weren't even allowed to argue. You were silenced, you know. And the, 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 the relevance of the 1967 Sexual Offences Act was that at least it decriminalised homosexuality. And you speak to young people and you just say, think about that. It was illegal to be gay. 
it's like illegal to have red hair or something. It's, it's, it's absurd. But the, the effect of that was so pernicious because it drove everybody underground. You'd have to be a very, very brave person indeed to declare your homosexuality and to campaign against it. And in a personal way, um, we founded a, a North Staff's Gay Switchboard when I was a student at Kew University. And we tried to put a paid advert uh, for the gay switchboard in the local uh, newspaper called The Evening Sentinels. Uh, and they just, carte blanche, just refused to carry our advert because they could. And that was pure homophobic bigotry. So we went and occupied their offices. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, Sean, um, you've written somewhere right. as well. Sorry, but it's much more recently, so. When the strike ended, I was afraid that I would be forced back into being an ordinary housewife. Um, and I think there's a lot about the film that seems to take your story. It makes it, you were very quiet at the beginning of the film, and then you become a sort of much more central presence in the film. Um, and also, not every woman went on to become an MP. It's an exceptional story. But perhaps you could tell us a little bit about, actually, to what extent the gender roles and the lives of women actually in the community have changed and how different they are now, and how typical or not typical that was in other ways for other women in the community. The, the wonderful photograph, sorry, the wonderful photograph in the centre there uh, was taken by a very dear friend called Imogen Young. And Imogen was, was, was gay, uh, lived openly, uh, sort of with a partner who was older than a Sheila in, in Cardiff and became a very dear friend of mine during the strike. And because she'd been commissioned to take photographs of women during the strike, you know, she spent a lot of time with us. And one day she was with my mother sitting there in, in our living room and she said to my mother, gosh, she said, isn't it wonderful all the things that are happening to Sean? You know, just changing in front of our eyes. And my mother said, well, no, not really, my mother said. I never know where she is now. <laughs> and Imogen said, well, where was she before then, Marty? Sitting at home knitting, my mother said. <laughs> And literally, you know, my, as long as my kids had the nicest knitted jumpers and my nets were the nicest, whitest nets and my brass was the most polished brass, I was very contented as a housewife. Now, we were political because my parents were active trade unionists and we were encouraged to get involved, but really we just knew what our limits were. We were there as adjuncts to our husband's trade union activities. And I think the strike blew that out of the water because the women became more militant, the women were running the picketing lines, because we had to picket instead of our husbands, fathers, brothers, cousins. If we got arrested, we couldn't be sacked. You know? And if the men got arrested, they could be removed, they could be charged, and they could be sacked. The ultimate sanction was sacking. And we, you know, 40 miners did lose their jobs and never worked again. And to my eternal shame, that's one of the things that I don't think we should ever have gone back into work without those 40-odd men. Uh, and, and I'm very ashamed of that, and I think the union should have stuck to its guns on those men. But we were changing because we had to take the lead. And we had to take the lead in things like organising the picketing line, you know, going instead, physically putting ourselves on the line. And I think as we progressed, we became more militant because we were meeting women from Green and Common, we were meeting women from, you know, you know, from the Women's Liberation Movement. We were told about passive resistance. We were told, you know, we were told this is what you should do when the police do this and the police do that. And it was sort of like this huge opening up, this vista in front of us of how other women's lives were, and we hadn't really considered them before. Uh, um, we were laughing talking about this Nicola and I, a, a lesbian friend we, we'd been taken to see and I still don't know what I went to see I, I still don't know because none of us are too sure but we were taken to see an art installation <laughs> and if you can imagine us on this visit to London you know where it's way out in the clubs every night you know, and, you know, and having a wonderful time um, but we had to have the cultural side of it as well and we got taken to see an art installation which was about uh, dinner plates which were decorated with depictions. Now, what was it? Because I still don't know what it was. Sorry? Is that what it is? Right, I'm going to see you later. But we got taken to see it and we were stunned. We were absolutely stunned because, you know, we, we, we couldn't interpret it. 
we couldn't understand it. You know, it all seemed a bit strange and, you know, very, very avant-garde. But we had this wonderful day with our lesbian friends. Who, you know, we did all these wonderful things. And, and our, our outlook, our focuses were changing, and we were changing. And I think that threatened a lot of the men. It threatened a lot of the men because they felt safe in the past. We were at home. We threatened our families in a sense. So when we got to this point where we were changing, we were changing for the better, and at the, at the end of the strike, I remember my mother turning to me and saying, it was a huge influence in my life, my mother, and my mother turned to me and she said, you don't want this strike to end, do you? And I said, of course I do, of course I do. You know, it's been really tough for you, you know, we haven't had any money. But I didn't, I was really, really afraid. Because I thought that I'd get pushed back into being that very ordinary, accepting person. And because of friends like Mike and other friends that I made, Jonathan and Nigel and Derek and Roy, you know, they weren't having a piece of it, you know, they were saying you've got to carry on and and I think that that was lovely that, that Matthew and Stephen caught that bit in the film because it was through the encouragement that people said to me, look, you, your, your story, not story, but your voice, your actions in this strike have been just as important as anybody else and you can't let it go. So I, I always say that my strike was a good strike. You know, every opportunity that came along, I took that opportunity, and, and I've never regretted a, a day of it because I met wonderful people and I got wonderful experiences, and it's uh, you know changed my life for the better. And I now know that there were because I then encouraged other women in my community. So if anybody was thinking about becoming a mature student, they would come and see me, and they'd say, "What's it like, Chan?" And you spread the message and you were there support. And I've always seen supporting other women within my community is a really important thing to do and I like to think that the kids who grew up doing strike like Owen and Finos and Rodri and Rowena and Pat, you know, they grew up with a totally different outlook because they were worried about sexuality they knew gay people, they talked about it in school and you know my granddaughter saw this film, she's 12 and my nephew saw it, they're 13, totally illegally they shouldn't have seen it till they were 15 <laughs> they did not blink and wasn't that wonderful? Wasn't it, wasn't it wonderful that my 12-year-old granddaughter didn't turn around and say, what's gay? You know, she didn't turn around and say, ooh, that's a bit odd. It was just, this is what life's like. Some people have made partners, some people, some people, you know, and they are a totally different generation, and I think that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. In part two of the event, Dermot Kelleher of Glasgow University looked at the politics of the 1970s and 1980s and explored the culture of solidarity that was so important at the time. Hi, thanks very much. I thought actually, even though I was invited, because I'd written up a piece about LGSM, I would not talk about LGSM, because it was all a bit strange lecturing you know, Mike about what he was up to in 1984. Um, so I might lecture some other people about what they were up to in 1984. So I thought I'd talk about the kind of solidarity movement a little bit more broadly. Um, I think one of the things that you see in that film that maybe Pride doesn't show so much is the kind of um, the way that LGSM was uh, kind of connected into much more broader kind of uh, solidarity movement within London and, and, and more widely. Of course, the, London against, uh, the, lab, the Lesbians Against Pit Closure woman in the film talks about how she saw herself as part of a kind of broader national network of women active around the strike. And of course... You know, central to that was um, people like Sean who were involved in women's against pit closures in the coal field, but there was very important work going on um, outside the coal fields as well. So as Sean mentioned, um, there was connections made with uh, women at Greenham, um, and the kind of politics that were really important and really interesting in terms of uh, nuclear power. Because, of course, the, the Greenham women were, were protesting against uh, nuclear weapons, and the, the Tory government in the 80s was pushing nuclear power as an you know, alternative to coal, as an apparently green alternative to coal, but in a very, very political way, on the basis that you, know, you can see in kind of cabinet minutes from, the, from 79 that the government uh, was pushing nuclear to undermine for the National Union of Mine Workers, basically. So those connections were really important. But there's also connections to do with... Um, women who were involved in, in uh, industrial action at the time. So there was a strike um, at Barking Hospital in East London 
uh, whilst the miners' strike was on over the privatisation of cleaning services, which was, you know, in itself a really important strike. And, and women from coalfields, women from Yorkshire, for example, went and joined that picket line and said that um, one of the reasons they joined it because they could see that the privatisation that was happening in the health service and the effect that was having on jobs and paying conditions was kind of what was facing them in the mining community. Because, of course, the miners' strike at least in part, was about attempting to attack the union so that they could privatise the industry. So as well as the, the women that joined the picket line at Barking, there was also um, striking mine workers from Kent, for example, went and, and joined the, um, the, the women who were on strike, uh, the cleaners who were on strike in Barking. So I thought I'd brought it up to talk about the way in which we should look at it in terms of kind of broader cultures of solidarity, that it wasn't just about people who were... Um, supporting the miners it was, a, it was a much kind of longer history of the miners supporting other people and that being kind of reciprocated and one really important example of this the Grunwick strike in the late 70s for those who don't know, the Grunwick strike was a strike of um, largely Asian women striking over issues to do with harassment and bullying and racism in the workplace, and also, very importantly, to do with trade union recognition. And it was a really key strike that lasted for about two years. And one of the reasons it was really important was because it was one of the first moments in which the, the kind of mainstream trade union movement supported a black-led um, strike. Uh, there have been kind of quite important black leg strikes in the 60s and 70s where the trade union movement had been a little bit kind of standoffish at, at best, I guess. Um, but Grunwick was a really important moment. And amongst those that supported um, the strikers in Grunwick were miners from across the country, uh, miners from Scotland, miners from Kent, miners from South Wales, came and joined the, the picket line in Brent uh, to offer solidarity. And it was kind of interesting. There's a, I don't know if anyone's seen Andy Beckett's book the, um, about the 70s when the light goes out and went out and he interviews uh, a Yorkshire miner who went down to the picket line in Grunwick uh, who said that, it was the, that there was a gay group there and this was the first time he'd come across a gay group. And it's really interesting the way that it kind of, in a quite a small way, kind of prefigures what happened with LGSM, that kind of solidarity in the relationships that were built. So, of course, to go back to the miners' strike, as I said, it was you know about supporting uh, the Grunwick was about supporting black workers during the miners' strike. Um, black organisations across the country were really important in supporting the miners themselves. Within London, there was a group called Black Delegation to the Miners. Um, they were made up of various organisations, people like um, Asian Socialist Collective or um, South Hall Black Sisters were very involved, for example. And similar to LGSM, they collected money and foods and made connections with. Um, coalfield areas. In particular, they went and visited Kent. They also um, collected money at uh, Notting Hill Carnival in 1984 and 1985 for the miners, and alongside them were actually were black miners from Yorkshire that had come down to do it with them. And I think it's kind of quite important. We're talking about miners and, and, and gay support and black support to not kind of say that black, minor and gay are like three separate categories that never never meet that you know there were black miners and you know one of the things I really appreciate about Pride was um, when one of the men in Delice um, kind of admits to being gay and you know saying that you know there are gay people in South Wales as well as in London <laughs> strange enough um, one of the issues that uh, black delegation really highlighted and similar to LGSM again was the kind of um, was police violence and how central that was to making these connections. Uh, of course, this is kind of periods uh, soon after the uh, urban uprisings in the early 80s. It's just before the Broadwater Farm riots um, in, I think it was October 85, just after the strike. And these, you know, it was really important that uh, black people, black and Asian people, kind of made this connection that what was happening to the miners was stuff that had happened to them as well. They also made the connection in terms of the north of Ireland. Um, and there was uh, miners and uh, miners' relatives, miners' wives and so on, that visited Belfast, for example, to see the kind of policing that was going on there and the way that the policing in Belfast and in the north in general had been kind of brought back to you know, the so-called mainland to, um, to attack the miners. 
And Black Delegation um, had a meeting in London, for example, where they invited speakers from Sinn Féin and the Palestinian Liberation Organisation to talk about these issues, um, which wasn't popular amongst everybody, as you kind of might imagine that Sinn Féin in 84 and the PLO in 84 were not widely accepted by everyone. And even within those that supported the... I mean, you know, they may still not be... Um, even amongst those that supported the miners, there was opposition to this meeting. Um, it took... Uh, Ken Livingston actually had to personally book a room in a GRC building after it had been cancelled by other people that worked there. And there was an NUM-sponsored um, Labour MP who kind of attacked the meeting and said that basically that the PLO and Sinn Féin were trying to undermine the miners' strike. Um, and the reason I brought that up, I think like it's very important to kind of celebrate the the solidarity that was going on, but I think it's important to be aware as well that there was kind of, you know, that there were these tensions here, that it was not all uh, everyone getting on perfectly all the time, that, you know, this was, you know, contentious in some ways. Um, I want to finish by saying a couple of things about um, trade union support. Of course, trade union, trade unionists, trade union organisations were kind of at the heart of a lot of the solidarity across um, the country. Trade councils, for example, were often behind the minor support groups that were set up. Um, Workers in rail uh, been really important in trying to block the movement of coal. I think that Aslef, the Rail Workers Union, said that something like one and a half had one and a half thousand instances of members writing to them and saying that they'd been sent home early for refusing to uh, move coal. Within London, I think one of the interesting groups was the print workers, um, who raised something like half a million pounds for the miners during the strike, but also took action to try and challenge the kind of media bias, the kind of the aggressive attack on the miners. And one of the most, you know, one of the great examples of this is when the print workers... Um, <laughs> print workers um, basically refused to publish uh, a front page that compared Arthur Scargill to Adolf Hitler. With, it had the headline, Mine, M-I-N-E, Führer. Um, but the print workers just refused to print it. And um, the, so that you can see pictures of the Sun that day, which was published with basically a blank front page, and just said, um, basically, we've had to publish this without our front page story, without our um, article, because the print workers have refused. Um, and again, within the trade union, of course, it's important to be aware that there was, you know, there were difficulties. There were there were trade union rank and file trade union members and trade union leaders who did not support the miners' strike in important ways. But for those that did, I think it was very much on the basis that um, trade unions were part of a labour movement. And I think part of what happened with the defeat of the miners' strike was it encouraged those who wanted to see trade unions as sort of providing services for their members, as a sort of insurance company for people at work. And, you know, a lot of that work is important, but I think the, the importance of having the idea of trade unions as a social movement, as a labour movement, is really key. And alongside that, what people like uh, Mike and LGSM and Black Delegations Miners were saying was, was kind of supporting this trade union, mo the movement, but saying that it needs to be much more broad and much more inclusive in its politics. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead I never died, says he I never died, says he In, In the final part of the Birkbeck event, Bev Skeggs, Professor of Sociology at Goldsmiths, University of London, commits a sociological exploration of the 1980s and the enemies within. Okay. <laughs> I'm now going to commit sociology, as it's called. Uh, but firstly, I should say, um, in 1979, I was a PhD student um, studying, doing an ethnography in Crewe um, on which became uh, Formations of Class and Gender, which was right near... I lived in Silverdale Colliery, um, 
And during that time, which of course destroyed the completion of my PhD, my house became a safe house for picketing miners from Yorkshire that were travelling through. But I was also one of the people who um, drove them into Nottingham for as long as I could. And it was very interesting at that time. I kept being stopped for being uh, speeding in Manchester, which was nowhere near Nottingham. And I couldn't work out why I was being stopped continually and fined. Um, and finally stopped completely from driving. Um, but this will probably explain why. Anyway, to begin very quickly to go through a lot of slides, so a lot of them for, uh, just for you to read. There was a plan, and it began in 1997. And, it was a, and all these documents are now declassified, so you can see them all. Margaret Thatcher's um, website has an awful lot of them. The Ridley Report, 1977, it was about uh, picking off... Uh, key trade union group and destroying them. They did this very, very purposefully. They used nuclear power, they stopped power coal, and very, very importantly, they cut off money to the miners for the strike and they supported an alternative union, uh, funded them in various different ways in order to totally divide and control the union that was in power. There's a lot of information on this, so you can follow it through. But we see it now through the declassification that began this year. Not only was there a plan to destroy the unions, to fund a separate union, to destroy the families, there was also a plan ready to use the army if the police failed. Um, and all the things we suspected, like why did I keep getting stopped on the M62 that was nowhere near Nottingham, can be explained through the police networks that we see revealed in all of this. So, to perform sociology, quite straightforwardly, I'd say the miners' strike was incited to use the battering ram of state power to break the single greatest obstacle to the transformation of the economy in the interests of corporate privilege and wealth. But where does the state get its money from? Workers, taxes. So it was using the workers' money to destroy the workers. The miners' strike reveals the power of the state operating totally and absolutely in the interests of capital. They took down the most powerful union in the country who were actually just fighting for better wages and conditions. It's quite staggering. Um, but why, I think very interestingly, did the traditional masculine trade union, the most powerful, uh, support other uh, political struggles? I think because there were so many enemies within. It wasn't just one enemy within. Everybody was being attacked during the 1980s. We had the gay plague, which was unbelievable. Unbelievable in terms of the, just picking on people as signs and signals of contagion. Absolutely, if you didn't live through it, it was remarkable. There were the urban black communities. They were terrorists too. They weren't contagious. They were going to kill you directly. And there were the feminists who were destroying the family. Of course, the trade unionists. And this was the beginnings of the attack on the unproductive. Those who couldn't create any profit for capital had to be got rid of. What's the point in paying welfare for them? The beginnings of the welfare cuts we see happening then. It was a phenomenal time of political unrest. And I can see, unlike my students who weren't born then, a lot of you lived through this. There was huge high unemployment. There was a massive, massive media campaigns of derision against all the groups that threatened profit accumulation. And there was the hardcore promotion of the heterosexual family. Some of you may remember the relentlessness of the royal family. And many of us were picked on, and this was pre-Section 28, for promoting homosexuality, promoting, homosexuality, promoting feminism, supporting anything. We were picked on continually. There were lots of people out there looking for us. Um, now, interestingly, this is a question to a journalist. Why was the media obsessed with the gay plague? It sells more newspapers than bingo, said a Sun journalist. Absolutely <coughs> astonishing. And you can see there's a great site called Gay in the 80s where there's a collection of all the gay plague contagion. You are going to die if you go near a gay person. Um, and this is how it kind of infiltrated our urban space. Everywhere you went, children learnt how dangerous the gay plague was. And it was turned into a joke by the Daily Star. The horror is unbelievable, and I'm sorry I reminded you of that, but I think you 
It's kind of part of the context for it. The next thing was the kind of the black terrorists, black youth. You've seen it happening now in 2011. You know how they get portrayed. You know how they get criminalised. 64% of black youth in 1984 had already been criminalised. But they responded. There were riots throughout 1981, throughout the country. Brixton burnt... Brixton burnt, Brixton burnt, Brixton burnt, Liverpool burnt, I think this is England. Liverpool was on a knife edge, Manchester burnt. But interestingly, Manchester had James Anderson, God's copper, Margaret Thatcher's favourite man. If you can remember him, he was seriously weird. He targeted all the enemies within. He had raids and decoys regularly on Canal Street. He had motorboats going up and down the canal trying to pick off gay men. And he had policemen lining in the roofs of gay bars to watch them. If that isn't perverse, what is? <laughs> he called AIDS victim a human cesspool of their own making. And he believed that trade unionists were a mafia an industrial mafia, absolutely, and he introduced plastic bullets the first time in Britain into Moss Side to shoot black kids. Not a lot changing there then. We also had the feminists, the other enemy within, Greenham Common. Thatcher couldn't call them terrorists because a lot of them were middle-class white women, but they were eccentric. They were policed in exactly the same way, with the same tactics... Quite extraordinary. You do realise the police force was doubled during this time. Their pay was doubled and their paying conditions were massively increased at the same moment. On to the miners' strike. I do lots of horses because it's the horses that were terrifying. And you've got to remember that a lot of pits are in villages. And to see the horses and all the police and what were effectively the army in your own street was just extraordinary. You know this, don't you? This is where people lived. This was Britain. This was a police state. This was unbelievable. Sorry? Yeah, I know. Absolutely, absolutely extraordinary. Nottingham, as many of you may know, was the place where I'd argue the strike was broken through the UDM funded by the state um, and where we were all trying to get the pickets and uh, pickets into but they, the police, they were famous for waving their money at you, absolute, when you were starving. Extraordinary stuff. And then, of course, the women. They did, the police didn't care who they attacked. They attacked anybody. They attacked kids, didn't they? You were there. Absolutely amazing. But there were lots of support, exactly as you've said. There was lots and lots of support coming from lots of different directions. And there's lots of support through food banks. This is the picture to support exactly what you were saying. Um, this was the media attacking the miners in particular. The stuff that went round about Arthur Scargill was extraordinary. He was a terrorist. He was supported by Gaddafi. He was funded by the Russians. Um, it, was, it was just amazing. The Roger Cook report, which is all in the Seamus Milne book. Um, but, of course, this is what happened. At least the print workers refused to print the Arthur Scargill thing. And then, of course, here you are, because there was lots of support coming from lots of different directions, so I wanted to include that. So to kind of draw to a close, what I think is really interesting is what we see in the miners' strike is all the state apparatus. I don't even know if you can say that word. Uh, all the state apparatus coming together. It wasn't just the police. It wasn't just the media. We had the law. We had the introduction of the 1984 Anti-Terrorism Act, which was used against ma miners. We had the reintroduction of the 1875 Laws on Congregation, of course, used to kill and destroy the uh, working class at the time and ship them off to the slave colonies. But interestingly, what I think is really, really significant is we had the debt mortgage companies, like you said, phoning up every week saying, pay your debts. The co-op supported the miners and didn't make them pay their debts at the time. And a lot of the northern building societies did. But everybody else was calling in their debt. Debt, as we know, in terms of student tuition fees, was being used to control people very, very effectively then. But what's also significant and has come out, everything we all suspected, is what's called the secret state, the SS. You've got to watch YouTube True Spies. You couldn't make it up. All three volumes. You cannot believe what was going on. And read the Seamus Milne book. The secret state had private security companies for the UDM and was protecting strike breakers. It's what Altazer, if we wanted to kind of focus on the main study of power, it's what Altazer would call a combined repressive and ideological state apparatus response, but with a secret state as well. It's what I'd call total power. 
But interestingly, as Delmed's mentioned, there were lots of links already being forged in resistance. We had Grunwick, we had lots of support across various different communities, and that's really important to remember. So, the state and capital most definitely won. But for how long? I wonder, because this is what they've done. They did win. They restructured Britain. The miners' strike defeat enabled a massive redistribution of wealth. They got what they wanted. The plan worked. The top rate of income tax in 1979 was 83%. It's just 40% now. Just last year alone, Britain's richest increased their wealth by £69 billion. That's in one year. Real incomes for the poorest have fallen 40%. 33% of families in Britain lack basic resources. We've had the longest depression of wages since 1979, and the cost of living has risen by 25%. We have 423 food banks... Most people have huge, huge debts. The average debt per household at the moment is £55,000. People in the UK alone own £1.45 trillion in debt. And a family is made homeless every 15 minutes in this country. We are the seventh richest country in the world. We've had massive welfare reconstruction. £18 billion have been cut to what are considered to be unproductive people, the disabled and the aged. It's absolutely disgusting. All these economic factors affect everybody but the rich. There have been some political gains, and I'm sure people will say they have been made. I'd want to argue they've been made in the interests of capital and state control. When I was researching for this, I got quite staggered when I found this, because the Ridley Report was 1997. This is like the Ridley Report on speed. We are now all being monitored. Any social unrest, um, we are, we are we're being looked at. Um, and no doubt, as you follow this through, uh, there's a lot of military preparation for the unrest. We're starting to see that now in Ferguson, in New York City. So I want to end by saying I think we need to get together. We need to reunite. For centuries, centuries, right from the beginning of the organisation of industrialisation, groups that challenge capital's ability to make profit are always played through difference. The differences don't really matter. They'll find any difference they can. But we're also controlled through various different state repressive forces, which are repressive, the police, benign welfare and ideological media, but also through finance, through debt. I think the big difference now to the 1980s, and I do agree with Mike, it's got much worse, is then we knew who our enemy was. It was ideological. We saw Thatcher every day. We heard her on the radio every day. Now it's by stealth. We don't hear it. It's very difficult to find out. It's very difficult to put all this stuff together. So I think we need to find new connectivities. I think they are. There are. They're they're beginning. They're here. And we need to remember that trade unions exist for workers' rights. They're not some sort of strange plot to make people talk to each other. The miners' strike was about destroying the working class in all its forms, and it's been followed by 30 years of contempt around the word class itself. I think different historical moments require different political allegiances, and at this moment we really need to be united. Thank you. The last word must go to striking miner Di Donovan, speaking at the 1984 Pits and Perverts Ball. All I'd like to say in conclusion is victory to the miners, victory to the lesbians and gays, victory to the old, victory to the young, victory to the sick, and victory to the working class. Thank you. You've been listening to Pod Academy.